the scripture is the book of Esther. For those who aren't familiar with Purim, it comes from the book of Esther, which is 10 chapters. We could read it. Um, actually, I watched a guy on YouTube last night chant through the whole thing in Hebrew. It was a 39-minute video. You can actually read it pretty quick. If you haven't read, I mean, honestly, and it wasn't even at blazing speed, but in general, even in English, the story's not terribly long, and it's kind of one of those page-turners. So I think if you haven't read it, it's good to read it. Um, I read it several times this week. It's a really good story, and you, uh, you heard some of, the, some of the things about porn. Real quick, also, I wanted to make an announcement because... You know, I spoke last week, and I'm speaking this week, and we have a guest speaker next week. So I want to kind of make a promotion for a very special guest speaker the week after next week. <laughs> His name is Chaim Erbach. <laughs> you know, no offense to anybody, but that always irks me. We have a special guest speaker. We have a special speaker just about every week when Chaim is speaking. So he will be, he will be here the week after next. So... Um, <laughs> It costs a lot. You wouldn't believe. Oh, boy. Um, but uh, you've heard about some of the traditions of Purim, so I won't go over all that again. There was one that I did read about this week that I will mention to you. It's actually in the Talmud. The tradition is that on Purim, you are to get so drunk that you cannot tell the difference between blessed be Mordechai and cursed be Haman. So, um, but we won't follow that tradition tomorrow, but just... Just another little little FYI one there. But Purim is one of those holidays that, that I believe um, you know, really encompasses that theme that we've talked about so often in many of the holidays where they tried to kill the Jews, they weren't successful, and now let's eat. Yeah, let's eat. So and it's right. You read, you read chapter 9, verse 20. It basically says that. I mean, it says it over and over. You know, That's basically what it says. So we don't make that up. But to get some more information about uh, Purim, um, I'm just going to recommend, I think we have this book on our book table, God's Appointed Times by Barney Kasdan. It's a good book. He treats actually a, a distant treatment of many of the festivals and holidays and uh, some of the, what they call the, the minor ones. And we might touch on why some people have certain views about Purim, but Purim's in there, Hanukkah's in there. So it's a good, a good resource. Also, if you, if you visit Chosen People's website, chosenpeople.com, and they have a little search thing you can put in there, free Purim e-book. And they've got a little, it's not really a book, it's a little dozen-page PDF, but it's got some good information about Purim. So there's lots of resources. Those were just a few, uh, a few that I had looked at this week and I thought you might, uh, might like to look at. Check those out. Another, another Purim tradition um, that I learned about was that for telling and recounting the story of Purim, tradition says that you will be blessed. So I'm going to tell the story of Purim today, um, pretty much going to go through the story. Now, tradition, as far as, you know, if you hear the story of Purim, it's silent on that. So I don't know what's going to happen for you listening. But for me telling, it's supposed to be a blessing. So uh, one of the things you hear often about the book of Esther that people just seem to, you know, talk about quite a bit is the name of God is not mentioned so then there's all these arguments about should it be in the Bible? Is God really mentioned? Is God the, the source of all of these coincidences that we see in the story? If you've, if you've read the story, you know what I'm talking about, and we'll see them as we, we go through in our abbreviated time today. 
But I wanted to read uh, to you, I was reading in the, what's, what's a Jewish, uh, I mean a Hebrew translation of the Bible, how do I say this? It's a Jewish translation called the, uh, the Stone Edition of the, of, the, of the Hebrew Bible. It's in English, but it's a Jew, not an evangelical um, tr- translation. But they had a little blurb, they had a thing on the introduction to Esther. And just a little something from that introduction I wanted to read from you. <coughs> it reads like this. It says, one can interpret events, this is again about the book of Esther, as coincidences until they fit a pattern too well to be anything but part of a well-conceived plan. So it was in the book of Esther. All the pieces fit, and the Jewish people suddenly realized that nothing had been left to chance, that God had been watchful all along, and that all that was wanting for their salvation was for them to recognize the source of their existence. So, the book of Esther is the last to be recorded and the first that should come to mind when everything else seems hopeless. And I see the, the, the story of Esther is just another one of those very thin threads. We see many of them in the, in the biblical narrative, very thin threads of preservation uh, of God's people um, which are ultimately, I believe, uh, uh, an indicator of God's faithfulness and a preservation of the Abrahamic covenant that we read about in Genesis 12. Uh, keeping that covenant alive, which is God's overall uh, plan of blessing the entire world through his chosen people, Israel, through whom came Yeshua, the Savior of the world. So very thin threads here, and that's what we see, we see uh, in this story. So again, what I'd like to do is, is go through the story, Basically, chapter by chapter, very much highlights. There's lots of details, lots of very neat details if you take the time to study the, you know, the, what they call sometimes editorial remarks, some of which I'll, I'll hit on today, but little details that are really kind of cool and uh, to think about you know, what it must have been like and so forth. But I'm just going to kind of hit on some of the highlights. So some of this may be review, but hopefully we can take a few observations away from a few sections of this book today that will be um, edifying for us as we, as we look at this. So... In chapter 1, we see this, uh, I mean, I don't even know if we can relate to this kind of party, but it's a six-month party, six-month party that goes on in the entire uh, kingdom of Shushan, and your translations might say Susa, and it's headed by King, uh, I can't even, the way Joy pronounced it is a very common, I can't even say it, Azureros or something, it's Achashverosh is the Hebrew name there, sometimes you see Xerxes, but we see this party that he's throwing, and then After that six-month party, he throws a week-long party, again, kind of with reckless abandon, uh, for just the folks in the capital city there. And it's during that party that he he asks, he's you know, so they're again probably you know they're very drunk and things, everything's very fun and happy and joyful. And he asks for his he sends for his wife, the queen, Queen Vashti, to come and to to. We can, we can expound on what, that, what she might have asked her to do, display herself in some form or another. And she refused to do so, and she was deposed. She was no longer queen. He fired her. <laughs> we can, there's all kinds of, of traditional interpretations that say what happened to her, but we know that she was no longer queen. So chapter 2 opens up with this, this search for a new queen, and we see that the way they do, they round up all the women, all the, the virgin uh, girls in the, in, the, in the area, and they bring them to the, to the king. And, and, and basically we see that Hadassah, who's one of the characters in there as well, is taken. And her name, that's, her name is Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. And um, we see that these women that get rounded up, if you will, um, they get a year-long spa treatment. 
one year, one year spa treatment. It says six months of, of oil and myrrh, six months of perfume and cosmetics for women. You know, statistics actually show in this country 90% of, of women, and men actually now too, 90% use some form of cosmetics. You know that? And the studies also say that the other 10% really ought to consider it. <laughs> there we go. That's true. <laughs> so uh, we see in that chapter, too, that Esther is chosen uh, as queen. And that's just one of the first amazing coincidences that she won the favor. It doesn't say God, you know, but it says that she won the favor. When you think about the hundreds of hundreds that were, chose, that were selected and, and what her life could have been had she not been chosen, I mean, she could have just spent the rest of her life as a concubine and a harem or what have you. But no, she was chosen above all else. And another key element that we, we find in chapter 2, very key to this story, is that we're introduced also to Mordechai. Mordechai is, her, uh, is Esther's first cousin, who basically acts like her father and who raised her uh, like, like his own daughter. And he encouraged her to, to do this whole thing. He said, don't just tell them about your Jewish heritage at this point. But uh, two, things with, two things, again, coincidences that we find out about. Actually, one real coincidence, one historical fact we find out about Mordecai, which is very key, is, is his lineage, genealogy. These are those little things I think sometimes we blow over in the Bible, but this is very important. Mordecai is a descendant of Saul, basically. He's the same descendants from, from King Saul. Um, that's very important. We'll get to that in the next chapter. It's very important that we find out that he is a descendant of Saul. And we also find out that while Mordecai is uh, hanging outside the, the, the palace, he overhears two disgruntled employees who basically are going to, who say they're going to, they want to put their hands, lay their hands on Achashverosh and kill him. And so Mordecai makes this plot to kill the king known to the king. And so with Esther, actually Esther is the one that gets the information to him and she tells the king about it and, sort of, and does it in Mordecai's name and it's recorded. It's recorded. So again, another very key coincidence that this is recorded in the, the, uh, the annals of the, of the kingdom. So just keep that in your mind for now. In chapter 3, we're introduced to Haman. Yeah, I, don't know, you know. I always did that, but I know other people, I felt a little awkward, you know, doing it, but yeah, do it if you'd like. But uh, anyways, uh, we, we, we learned about him, and, and we really don't learn actually a whole lot about him, except again, a very key thing, I believe, is his genealogy. Anyone know who he's a descendant of? Amalekites. Uh, this guy in the corner will answer all the questions. So just assume that he knows. We'll all look this way because he knows all the answers. But um, the Amalekites, Agag. And if you go, I'm not going to review the history for you, but if you want to take notes, write down 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, I believe, is very key to this story as well because there's, there's an inter- interaction between Saul and Agag, the Amalekites, and now we've got two descendants of those two folks here in our story as well. Um, so Mordecai, we f- I mean, I'm sorry, not Mordecai, but Haman in chapter 3, we, we find that he is promoted to a very high position of power in the kingdom to where uh, people are supposed to bow down to him in reverence to him when he comes around, and Mordecai won't do it. Why not? Well, ch- uh, in chapter 3, it basically it says that Mordecai told everybody he was a Jew, and it also, uh, Haman went and told the king that this guy, these, these are these people in your kingdom who have different laws and they won't bow. You need to do something about them. 
So this is where people uh, would, as Rabbi Chaim says, they would break their teeth trying to figure out, okay, why didn't Mordechai <coughs> bow down? <coughs> is this an example that, that the God's in the picture? Is he a religious person? Is it based on his monotheistic beliefs? Or is it based on his knowledge of history between the, the, the two lines that are kind of in enmity? And I'll give Chaim's answer to this as well. Yes. In other words, I, I don't believe they can be separated. This is one and the same. I don't think you, you can say one's secular, one's not religious, God's in one and God's not in the other. It's all part of the same thing. And we see here that because of this, because of Mordechai's resistance to, to show this, uh, this res not even respect, but this uh, undue respect, that uh, Haman plots to kill Mordechai, and not only Mordechai, but the people he's a part of, all the Jews everywhere that are living in the areas that are under the control of the king. And just to come up with a date as to when this is going to happen. He's going to write up an edict to do this, and the king approved it and so forth. And it's almost like a bounty that he offers for people who will kill the Jews. Um, he casts lots in order to come up with the date. And the Hebrew word for lot is pur, and so the Hebrew word for lots is purim, and that's where we get the name of the holiday, purim, in chapter, chapter 3 there. So Mordechai, in chapter 4, he, when this, this edict goes out, the, the, historically they say that the Persians had this amazing mail delivery system. Seriously, you know, the way they did it. And it describes it in the book here. I won't get into that, but it went all over and word gets out and uh, Mordechai uh, laments and wails and, and sits in sackcloth and ashes. Again, in my, the way I view it as a very religious sign. This is not something you do if, you're not, if, if God's not in the picture. Um, but he, he, he fasts also. And uh, he relays this decree to his cousin, Esther, who's in the palace. And he encourages her to say, look, this is serious. This is the time you need to now go before the king and tell him, lay everything out before him, uh, and, and no longer keep your Jewish identity a secret. And Esther hesitates at this. She balks at the idea because, she, you know, the rule was if you weren't summoned to go see the king, that you could be killed if the king didn't receive you. And so she's a little hesitant about this. And this is where we get the big famous uh, quote that, that many of us have heard. It was actually in our, part of it was in our, our responsive reading today. It's been quoted millions of times, I'm sure, and under different circumstances. And I'll read it to you again, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 4. Uh, Haim, I mean, sorry, Mordechai says to Esther, he says, Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter Literally, in the, it says from another place. Um, people can we, we, and people focus in on that. Is that God? Is that you know that, that statement of faith? He says, "But you and your your family, your father's family, will perish." And then he says, "Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this." In other words, we might paraphrase that this way: uh, being in the right place at the right time. We we sometimes say it that way. So Esther in response to that, asks Mordechai to, to fast. And not only that, but to get everybody to fast. And, uh, and again, it doesn't say pray, but I believe that's part of the equation. That's clearly what's going on here. And she says, I'll also fast for three days and for three nights, no food, no water. Myself and my, the, the women who are with me. And uh, they do that. And then after that time, she says, after those three days and, and three, three nights of no water and food, I'll go into the king. <clears throat> so chapter 5 begins by telling us that on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes 
and stood in the inner court of the king's palace opposite the king's hall. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor, and he held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand, basically meaning he's not going to kill her. The king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? Imagine the scenario for a second. Uh, Esther was definitely uncertain about this whole thing. I mean, she doubted. And I imagine as she was standing there in the inner court, her heart was pounding. And my daughter Sophia talks about the the flutter feeling in her stomach, you know, uh, breathing a little heavy. Have you ever found yourself in a situation and wondered, how in the world did I get here? (laughs) What have I gotten myself into? What am I really supposed to be doing here? You know, you feel kind of out of place. And I came across this story actually a couple of years ago. I wanted to kind of relay it to you. <clears throat> it's from a, a Bible. Sometimes there's pretty cool things in the front of your Bible. You know, it's not just the Bible. There's neat things in the front <laughs> if you read the, the beginning, the preface and so forth. This is a Bible from a Bible called the Hebrew Reader's Bible, which is a Bible. Uh, it's in Hebrew, and some of the words are translated. In other words, you have to have kind of a basic knowledge of Hebrew, and then for the words you don't know, they're at the bottom, and you can kind of read along and see. So this is from the, one of the, the, the chief editor of that, of that Bible. Um, I'll kind of skim through the story, but basically he was working on it. His name is Philip Brown. He was working on a Ph.D. in Old Testament interpretation. This is back in the mid-'90s, and he had this, this Bible software program on his computer, and as he was using the program, he would send little bugs. It was early on in the, in, the, in the development of this Bible software called BibleWorks, which is still around today. And he had numerous bugs that he found, and he'd submit them to the company as he found them. And then at that time, they were working on the next version of the software. And basically, the people had got all these bug things from him to the point where they uh, said, hey, would you, here's a free copy of the software. Would you be a tester? Would you test it out? Be a beta tester, they call it, um, for, the, for the program. And so he did that. And then he, uh, he completed his Ph.D. work several years later, about three years later. And he said, I got a job grading tests and supervising degree completions uh, at Bob Jones University, which is the seminary where he was at. And six months after he got that job, he got put on this project to, to, to transition the office from WordPerfect, which is a computer program, to MS Word. Okay? And he was involved with that. And, and to do that, he had to learn Visual Basic, which is a computer language, and, and access databases and all this kind of stuff. And he said, I enjoyed coding, meaning I enjoyed learning all this stuff and enjoy, enjoyed learning how to computer program. He said, but I could, just couldn't see any relevance between that and God's calling on my life as a Bible professor. And, you know, how I could see, couldn't relate those two. In, in uh, 2004, now this is like 11 years after this initial, when he's working on his Ph.D., in 2004, he heard about a Greek reader's Bible, which is the same idea I described in Hebrew, just in Greek. And it was published by this big publishing company called Zondervan, who publishes lots of books. And he, th- he said, he, he contacted Zondervan and said, hey, any, any chance you're going to do a Hebrew version of this? Nah, not really. Okay. I mean, I, I'm just going to work on it for fun. So he, he decides to work on a little version for fun, and he, he comes up with the book of Jonah, sends it off to the publisher just because, and he gets actually a response saying, hey, you know what? We actually got, this is, your, this is the third one we've got. And the guy's like, okay, great. They're ne- never going to entertain you know, a third offer at this point. Um, but two months later, he gets an email from the senior editor telling him that Zondervan was interested in talking to him about this proposal. However... He said a prerequisite for producing the book was the ability to compose and typeset the entire project. And he says in order to accomplish this, it was necessary to develop a database 
and write a program to typeset the entire volume in MS Word, and then Chris could explain, you know, programmatically get everything into the, you know, this big interchange of data, the exact stuff he'd been working on. And he says, what had appeared to be, he said, what had appeared to me to be unrelated events here were, in fact, the converging elements of God's plan to equip me for the present work. And I read that story, and, I, and, I, and it came to mind because I think that that's really what it means to be in the right place at the right time. It's not about, you know, I'm just walking down the street and, hey, they're giving out free coffee. Hey, man, I was in the right place at the right time. Or, you know, there's a $20 bill. Hey, right place at the right time. I was here for a time such as this. <laughs> Pull up to the grocery store, front row spot. Hey, they were just backing off, and I can't. Perfect. I was in the right place at the right time. I don't think so. I think that, that this idea, and this idea that's expressed here in this often quoted uh, statement by Mordechai, has to do with understanding that your life truly is a part of God's overall plan. And key here is that because of that, you need to walk in the authority and the plans that he set before you. And it has to do with your understanding that as a believer, you know, you've not just been redeemed and made righteous in God's eyes, and, and, and yes, you have been, but that's not where it ends. In other words, God has, you know, because you're in that position and because we're co-laborers with the Lord, uh, we read that in 1 Corinthians 3, 9, because we're in that position, God necessarily has to equip you and give you a certain amount of authority as you serve him, as you, as you walk with him, as you seek him. And when Esther went to see the king, let's not overlook the fact that she was dressed in her royal robes. That's right at the beginning of chapter 5. I think that was pretty key, and that stood out to me. And this is not a situation like we saw in the beginning when she was being chosen, when they were all perfumed and myrrhed and oiled and smelling good and looking good. She wasn't going to try to, you know, win him with her feminine wiles and so forth. Remember, she'd been fasting for three days and three nights. That's going to do a little something to your physical. I'm not saying you know, you're supposed to, maybe you perked yourself up at the point that she was in a physically weakened state in addition to being nervous. And note how the king recognized her in chapter 5. And she comes in, he lowers the scepter, and he doesn't, does he say, oh, hey, dear, how you doing, honey? What's up, Esty Poo? You know? Now, it's very, it's very it's straightforward in Hebrew. It says, he said, uh, what, what, basically, what, what is it, Esther the queen? Very clear. And that's like the first time he's addressed her that way, the first time we see in the whole book that he says Esther the queen. So there's definitely, I think there's a relationship between the authority she came in and the way he addressed her. And also note that this, again, this being in the right place at the right time, it's not about that split-second kind of thing. It's, it's a process. Anyone who, anyone who doesn't know, Michael, maybe, maybe you don't know this, Michael. How long had Esther been queen at that point? Between the time she became queen and the time this, this, this thing became known. I stumped this, this, the master. Yeah, that's kind of what I think sometimes. Any other guesses? Over four years. I never knew that before. Over four years she had been queen. That's something to think about. Again, I think that plays into this understanding of what it means to be there for a time such as this, or in the right place at the right time. The story I read you here was over a decade this gentleman was involved. And Esther was definitely scared to death at this point, and it, it's clear. She says, you know, if I die, I die. But I do believe, and this is, I think, key that we, we look at this, I do believe that she embraced the fact that her appointment as queen was not by mere chance, 
and that she did, again, in spite of her fear and, and, and concern, that she had arrived. She did understand she had arrived at dignity, royal dignity, for a time such as this. And as such, she needed to walk in that authority that she'd been walking in for over four years. <clears throat> and as believers here today, I think we are, we are people who also have been sent to do a job. Everything we say and do in life is under the, the auspices, under the control, under the, the authority of the one who sent us. And when I, usually when I hear that, I, I tend to back away from that word authority sometimes because I, t- I often think, well, that just means, you know, I'm, and I'm five and a half feet tall, but I'm the authority, you know, and it means you're powerful and so forth. And we get this idea, uh, and, and that's not necessarily what it is. You know, again, Esther walked in in authority, but she was in a weakened state, but she was in her, the authority that didn't give in to her. We can read about authority in Romans 13 as well. That's a whole other sermon. But again, this doesn't mean that we have a, a big head or an air of superiority, but it means, it means what I think is very key that most people will agree with about the this book of Esther is that we recognize God's sovereignty and we operate in that understanding of God's sovereignty in everything that we do. Everything, even in times when we're uncertain about exactly what God might be doing or if he's even there. So in chapter 5, Esther is received by the king. And and what she does is he asks her, what is it? She invites him to a luncheon that day with Haman. And uh, they have that luncheon. And then Haman goes out of this meeting stoked. I mean, he is fired up. He's on top of the world. He goes home. He tells his wife how good his life is. Tells all his friends, I'm doing so good at my job. I got money. I got ten sons. But I'm even going to be invited to lunch tomorrow. But even in the midst of it all, he just couldn't get over that fact that Mordecai, the Jew, would not bow to him. It was just eating at him. You know, I've got a um, minivan. It's about ten years old now when it was newer, in its newer state, um, if you went out and looked at it in the parking lot right now, uh, you would say, oh, it's a white minivan. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's not a white minivan. Because I, I, when I shopped for this van back in 2007, uh, it, it, I wanted a particular model. I wanted the XLE model. And that one does not come in white. It might look like white, but it is Arctic Frost Pearl. And it is. It's different. It is different than the white. It's a, te- it's a different color. It's the more higher level color. And it's Arctic Frost Pearl. And one day, my Arctic Frost Pearl had a little smudge of pink on it. I don't have a pink car. Uh, somebody else was doing a little target practice somewhere uh, on my car. And so I, I, it was just paint there. And I, I put some rubbing compound on it. I figured I could get it off. And I did. I, I got it off. But it kind of dulled the clear coat, you know. And ever since then, when I walk out and look at my Arctic Frost Pearl minivan. Do you think I see Arctic Frost Pearl? Man, I see that dull spot. Man, that dull spot bothers me. That's, uh, that's dissatisfaction, folks. That's pride. And, you know, it's like the kid that gets four out of the five things for his birthday, and where's the fifth, you know? Looking at that one thing we don't have. And I, I, I'm not going to try to paint a picture of Haman here, uh, like, you know, or say that he didn't have any flaws, but when we read Esther, the reality of the story is we don't know much about his background other than his genealogy, and we don't know much else, but what we do know, like Chaim says, sometimes we've got to park on what we do know. What we do see, and what's very clear, is this one fatal flaw that he's got. I'm not saying he's not an anti-Semite or whatever the, 
But the point is, he's got this one fatal flaw. That is certain. I mean, he had everything. He had everything anybody could want. And all he could think about was that one little burr in his saddle. I don't know if we're doing the Western tomorrow. I don't think so. And that burr was pride. It was dissatisfaction. And it led, as we'll see a little later, it led to the unusually high honoring of his enemy, Mordecai. I mean, over-the-top honoring, you'll read about and, and complete destruction on his part, that one little thing. And this is a big one. And, and, I don't, and the reason I bring it up is because I think, you know, when's the last time you read the book of Esther and thought, I'm like Haman? But I think the, uh, the reality is we shouldn't overlook that. We shouldn't assume that, that was just Haman's problem. And it wasn't relatable to us. You know, last week we were in Acts 3 and I talked about where it talks about, you know, our sin being wiped away, blotted, obliterated, you know, expunged from our record, and how the truth is we really don't, I mean, I know I'll speak for myself, I don't know that I really get the gravity of that, of just how bad sin was that it needed to be blotted out and wiped away. And I think in the same way, I don't think we really realize what we set in motion and what we convey to God when we fall prey to pride and dissatisfaction, which I think we're all susceptible to. I'm going to pick up a little bit of speed with regard to the rest of the story here. I mean, that's a real, this is getting to the real pivotal parts of the story. But chapter 5 ends then with Haman's wife and his friends confirming, yes, you know, this dissatisfaction is really driving you crazy and you should build a big gallows and then you should hang this, this Jewish guy on there. Ask the king about it in the morning. So it sounds like a good idea to Haman. I'll ask the king in the morning and he sleeps like a baby. Some babies. And, uh, friend of mine said, I sleep like a baby, you know, every, every three hours screaming and crying, you know, but uh, no, he slept very well. Um, but again, coincidence, the king did not, right? The king did not sleep well. He was up and uh, had some insomnia and he, he asked people to come and read to him from those records of the kingdom. And in those records we read, he gets read to, could have been anything. I mean, this guy had been king for over a dozen years at this point, could have been anything. Coincidence, it was read to him about the plot to kill him that Mordecai uncovered. And he said, have we done anything to honor this guy? And they said, no. And he said, well, we need to do something. Who, is anybody show up at work? Anybody clock in yet? Is anybody here that I can talk to? And they look out, and sure enough, Haman's out there because he wants to talk to him about killing this Mordecai. <laughs> and so go get Haman. Haman comes in, and the king tells him, who, you know, what should, what should be done, Haman, to the, to the uh, man the king wants to honor? And Haman pride, right? His dissatisfaction. Who else could it be but me? So he goes on this ridiculous list of what to do to the, to the, with the person. And the king says, fantastic. Do that. Uh, and, and do it all to, to, uh, to Mordecai the Jew. <laughs> what was that you wanted to talk to me about, by the way? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> so chapter, so he does it, you know. And we can imagine how he felt. And I sometimes I was wondering, I wonder how Mordecai felt when Haman came at him and, you know, you know, well, he's coming at him right now and put this robe on, get on the horse. So chapter 6, I'm sorry, not chapter, that was chapter 6. Chapter 7 is, uh, this, is the, this is the turning point of the story, really, where, where Esther then has this second luncheon. Actually, it's funny, the text says that after all that happened, they, the, the eunuchs or the servants came and they hurried Haman back to the lunch. I mean, it's just, it's kind of neat. That one little thing, so they hurried him back. Um, 
But that's where Esther basically unloads the whole, you know, this is what's going on, this is the edict, and this is how, you know, it's going to be negative for you, it's going to kill my people, and it's going to be bad for the kingdom. And, and the king says, well, who was it? And he says, she says, uh, you know, who's going to do this? And she says, it's Haman. And he just leaves the room. He can't even, he's got to compose himself. And Haman throws himself at the feet of the queen, actually on her bed that she's laying on. So when the king comes in, whether he thought it or not, he just, you know, hey, you're going to do this, you know, you're going to assault my wife in front of me as well, right in my own house. And that was the beginning of the end for, for Haman. So chapters 8 through 10, then, that's sort of the, this is, it's a lot of description about how they fought and how the edict went out. There was a reverse edict because Haman's, you know, his, his dissatisfaction, his pride, it didn't end there uh, in chapter 7. I mean, it had lasting consequences um, because the, 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 the history, some people argue this, but the history, at least in, in the book of Esther, tells us that you couldn't just change a law like that. So they had to sort of run a parallel law, a parallel edict that allowed the Jews to proactively defend themselves. And so we see how all that plays out, and they triumphed, and Mordechai was promoted in the kingdom. Uh, Haman and his whole household were killed. House was given to Esther, actually. They ended up, Mordechai became in charge of the house. I mean, quite a reversal. And then we also see the institution of the Feast of Purim. And again, I think it all, all these coincidences and things like this, it sort of follows the, the pattern of how feast days are and stuff. I think it's pretty clear that God... You know, some people want to say his name's not there, but I think his power is there and his, his involvement's there on every page. <clears throat> There's also some cool details in there about this whole 1 Samuel 15 thing that you can pick up uh, when it talks about plunder. But, you know, when we read this story, when we read this story of Esther, and we read other stories like it in the Bible, when I say other stories like it, I mean other stories that have situations that that seems sticky, or there's a moment where we think, oh, these people are going to be destroyed, or how are the Israelites going to get across the Red Sea? And, you know, when we read these things in the story, in, in the Bible, you know, we read about Yeshua going to see Lazarus, and, there, you know, he, he takes his time, right? And, oh, if you'd have just come here earlier, he wouldn't be dead, right? We read these things, and we don't side with the side of things that says, oh, yeah, if Yeshua would have come earlier, or, oh, what's going to happen? No, we get it, we excited. We read, the, we read that sticky situation, and we say, here comes, you know, God's involved, we know it, and here comes the miracle, right? Well, if we read the scriptures, if that's how we, we react when we read the scriptures, that I, I want to ask then, why do we live out our lives differently sometimes? You know, why is it that when things seem a bit topsy-turvy or they're, you know, the, we're in a bad state or we don't, again, we're, we're sitting there wondering, what, what got me here? What am I doing here? What have I done? We, we start to delve deeply and look at ourselves and look at the situation um, or worse yet we question where God is and I want to encourage us you know I, I pray that that we would read our lives in the same way that we read the biblical narrative where our first assumption needs to be that God's not on holiday as Chaim has mentioned many times you're not off in Tahiti or wherever you want to or off with the missing Malaysian jet liner which is a horrible thing um, but out there somewhere we don't know where he is, but that he's involved. He's not this, there's a, there's a thing in theology that uh, some people want to explain how God created the world and that there's the one that says he's just a great watchmaker where he just created this intricate watch and wound it up and pff, let it go and it just sort of operates on its own and he doesn't insert himself into that anymore. It just sort of operates on its own. That's not the case. I don't believe that's the case when you read the Bible. You, can't, you shouldn't come up with that, that uh, theology. And something 
you know, in the book of Esther, too, all these situations, and even some of these other ones I mentioned in the Bible, that, you know, these people weren't in this situation necessarily because of something they did. Again, we tend to look at our, you know, what is it I've done? Let's delve into the situation. They were there in exile, uh, not due to their own situation necessarily, their own screw-ups, if you will. It was people before them. And, you know, we can easily, I think, find ourselves in that same situation. Um, you know, maybe you might be suffering from something that you did or you think you did or a decision you made, or maybe you're in that camp of, you know, oh, my family really messed me up and the way I was brought up or, you know, the people at work, you know, they're really doing this to me and, and so on and so forth. And you know, you've got a choice to make in those situations. You know, you can sit there and you can try to, you know, again, focus on that and try to figure out how to unravel and untangle all that stuff. Put your efforts there or... You know, decide how God's ticked off with you and all this stuff. Or you can trust God. Sounds simple, but it's, it's the message. And we're going to take a, a few minutes uh, here at, at the end of our service just to listen to some worship music before we close out our service. And during that time, um, a few of us will be available up front for prayer if you'd like to come. And I want to invite you during that time as we, as we sit here for a few moments just to take that time to consider those areas in your life that maybe you've been assuming that God is absent from or areas in your life that maybe you think he's upset with you about and you're somehow suffering the consequences and just overall areas that you think maybe he's not active in um, and not in control of. And, and during that time, I want to encourage you to, to ask him how to show you and to assure you that he, in fact, is there. He is firmly in the driver's seat and he is enabling you to walk in the authority that you have just as a redeemed person you may not be the queen hopefully but even as a redeemed person in, in, in the messiah you have an authority to walk in i pray that you'd ask him to show you that so before we do i think rabbi Chaim, i'm going to ask you to come and lead us into that time would you please stand Just a couple of thoughts. Basic question is simply this. How do you see yourself? Who are you? You know, you can come up with all kinds of lists of explanation. This is who I am because I do this, this, and, and that. What is so difficult for us to get our arms around is the basic notion that you and I are God's children and God's servants. And because we're God's servants, as Rabbi David mentioned, we have to operate with authority and with a power and resources that God, in a sense, has to give us in order for us to be able to get the job done. And if or as we grab our, our arms around that truth, it will revolutionize it will radically change our perspective of how we see ourselves, how we see our situation, how we see God. Because we'll realize that there is a plan, that God is working the plan, that he has a place for us in that plan, and that regardless of what takes place on the ground or doesn't, you and I are committed 
to pressing forward with the authority that God gives us and doing what he's called for us to do, what he's put before us. It's a very simple reality, folks, but one that we have such a terrible time getting our arms around. So as we pray and as we worship, would you ask the Lord to reveal that to you? That you have a special part in God's plans. Hallelujah. Lord God, we thank you and praise you, Lord, that you call us to be your servants. And Lord God, I pray for each one of us that you would reveal the basic truth, that basic truth to us, Lord, that we would understand it in our language that you've called us to be priests, Lord, your representatives in all the situations, all the environments you put us in. And Lord God, we pray for the eyes of faith to see that and hearts of courage, Lord God, to embrace that reality and simply say, Lord, here I am, here I am. Empower me to do your will by your spirit in the authority you have for me to use to do your will. Speak to us, Lord God. We pray in the name of Yeshua.